Hey folks, this is John coming to you from the Head of the Bed, a podcast from the anesthesia community. We're back with Dr. Tim Fitzgerald in part two of a three-part series on enhanced recovery programs. In part one, we discussed the background of quality initiatives in healthcare and the history of the development of ERAS. It's a critical piece to the picture, so be sure to go check that episode out if you haven't already. In this episode, we dive into ERAS from the preoperative phase of care through post-op care with special attention to implications for anesthesia teams. We'll be back in part three to unpack the concepts of frailty in the perioperative surgical home. Now, Dr. Fitzgerald's full introduction is in the first episode, but in case you missed that, I want to let you know that he's the Director of Surgical Oncology at Maine Medical Center in Maine Health. He's a uh, surgical oncologist who specializes in complex gastrointestinal surgery, and he's an expert in enhanced recovery programs, having implemented them at other institutions and published and lectured extensively on the topic. With that, let's get to the interview. Well, let's shift over and talk specifically about ERAS. So um, give us a 10,000-foot view of ERAS. So maybe well, I would say that it, the, the big picture of enhanced recovery, I think there are two components that are, that are important. One is that it involves the entirety of the patient's surgical experience. That is, we've previous pathways have focused on what happens after surgery. This focuses on everything, patient, patient pre-op optimization, holding area, what happens in anesthesia, and what happens after surgery. And the second important idea behind enhanced recovery is that as a vehicle for incorporating change that is when there's a change in practice, that when a new best practice comes, apart, comes, up, comes upon us that is incorporated into these in an enhanced recovery program. So it's both understanding the totality of the patient's experience dictates how they do, and also how do we incorporate best practices that are out there so that the patients reap the benefits. That's great, that's great. So it, it talks about every phase of care Let's break those phases of perioperative care down a little bit. What does enhanced recovery mean for planning surgeries in the, in the pre-hospital, pre-operative environment for patients? So the, the general idea behind enhanced recovery is that it decreases surgical stress. So we decrease the stress of operation by avoiding starvation. Uh, we decrease the stress of surgery and improve outcomes by giving a carbohydrate load so that patients have appropriate energy for surgery. We decrease the stress of surgery by giving multimodal pain management. Um, we um, decrease the uh, complications by minimizing opioids, which have side effects. We decrease the stress of surgery by not over-resuscitating our patients because we know total body water is associated with cellular dysfunction and ab aberrant physiology. And then we decrease the stress of recovery by not starving patients after surgery that's feeding people when they're hungry, and by early convalescence. So if we unpack that, so what does that look like in the patient experience? I think it's, it's probably easiest to, to, to break it up into chunks. In the office, in the holding area, in the operating room, and on the and on the general care ward is that a good way? That's great. Go for it. <laughs> so, so in the pre-op setting, yeah. it, there's a one is setting appropriate expectations. That is telling your patients what's going to happen. And what we have done here, which is there's a we have a five ten page booklet with a nice little cartoon in the center that really highlights 
what you're supposed to do so patients know what to expect. Um, and realistic expectations, that is you're going to have a little bit of pain. You're going to get up and walk the day after surgery. If you're not hungry, you if you're hungry, you can eat so that patients know what they're getting into. And then it's also um, for colon patients is doing uh, bowel prep that incorporates antibiotics and a bowel cleansing, and that's been associated with decreased risk for infection. And then it's avoidance of starvation and carbohydrate loading. As, that, as you know, forever we have starved patients after midnight, regardless of when their surgery was gonna be done the next day. And we know that you can drink clear liquids up to two hours before surgery. What's the advantage of that? Well, one is patients feel better, right? I don't, I don't know mm -hmm. about, about you, but a lot of folks when they get up in the morning, if they don't have their cup of coffee, uh, they get a horrible headache. Yeah. It's stressful. And being hungry and thirsty is stressful. That increases your cortisol level and your catecholamine level. And then it goes one step further that we know that you're going to have a significant physiologic stress. And having the right energy available for that is helpful. So that's where the carbohydrate loading comes, just like in someone who's going to run a marathon, uh, which uh, for... Uh, just to add, if they admit I've never run a marathon, I'm trying to say how to say that, you know, so I, I'm just read about people who run From marathons. what you've heard, it's a big <laughs> physiologic stress. Or if I'm going to go on a bike ride, you know, a long bike ride, which I like to do, yeah. you know, mountain biking, you know, I usually eat something that's got some carbohydrates sure. beforehand. So that's the idea of carbohydrate loading people for this big physiologic event where they're going to need that energy and it's using the right energy, you know. Simple sugars aren't what should be done. It's complex carbohydrates in a drink. And we have a, one that's specifically designed for that. The patients would get two to three hours before surgery. And that gives them that energy. And interestingly, they, you'll notice with that cortisol levels are lower, catecholamine levels are lower, glucose levels are lower, mm. even in type 2 diabetics. And that has to do with physiologic derangement and, again, avoiding surgical stress. So that's what happens in the pre-op setting. Education avoidance of starvation and carbohydrate loading. The patient comes to the holding area. We know it's important to keep people warm. So they're going to get a blanket. Specifically, let me touch back on, you mentioned type yeah. 2 diabetics. Do type 1 diabetics also get a complex carbohydrate drink? They do, but it hasn't really, I haven't seen any studies on it, so I don't okay. know. Um, I don't know. All patients, regardless of if you have diabetes or not, their uh, blood sugar is being monitored in the perioperative phase. Yes, and that's important. I didn't mention that. Thanks, John. That it's really important that we manage glucose properly. And this this is a great this this is a fantastic example of something we know as best practice that isn't being practiced routinely. We know that a single blood sugar higher than 180 or 200 is associated with an increased postoperative mortality. That data is incontrovertible. And there are several prospective randomized trials that demonstrate better outcomes with tightly controlled sugar, but we don't do it. So blood sugar should be monitored in the holding area and monitored throughout anesthesia. And that we should, our goal should be that the patients have tight control, but not too tight. You know, less than 90, particularly trauma patients, has been associated with worse outcomes, as, as you probably know. Uh, but to not be 100, greater than 180 and try not to get lower than, you know, 100 or 90 if you can. Um, but it's difficult to do that. 
it change mm. it requires a change in practice or yeah. a change in the way we deliver anesthetic and a change in the way we manage patients after surgery and as part the national protocol doesn't have a good glucose control or glucose control um, paradigm or protocol that there have been practitioners here at Maine Medical Center that have developed a glucose protocol and have been looking for a time to launch it so yeah. they'll launch it during this enhanced recovery program and that is that is important those blood yeah. sugars will be easier to control with enhanced recovery but also for patients who are diabetics or even patients who aren't diabetics who have increased blood sugar secondary to the physiologic stress of a of an operation that we control that yeah yeah that's great okay and, and you were on holding room so what so do we do with these room, folks so in holding room get keep them warm yeah. So you put a warming blanket on them. That's not routinely done now. It should be done in all patients, and the data for that is good. You start your multimodal pain management. You give, we give patients uh, gabapentum, but gabinoid, those gabinoids are important. Uh, there are other, other forms. Uh, give them uh, Tylenol, um, and then in appropriate patients, give them NSAIDs, being mindful that NSAIDs uh, have consequences. They increase risk for bleeding, uh, and they're excreted the renally toxic and excreted renally, so you have to be careful in the patients you give those to. Uh, and uh, those are given in the holding area. So you start your, your pain management before the surgery starts. Mm -hmm. uh, and then then we move to the operating room. Now that you'll know more about this than I do, John, but the anesthesia protocol is, is slightly different than the standard. That is a lower tidal volume respiration. Um, a little bit different anesthetic with a more rap, more easily with rapid awakening regimens and those I'm, I'm not versed in those. I don't, I'm sure you know more about that than I do. I think one of the goals is just uh, in line with early convalescence and early oral intake to try to find anesthetics that uh, allow patients to wake up and engage in those activities as quickly as possible is, is the gist. Yeah. And then, and then, the multimodal pain management, I think, is a huge paradigm shift from the typical way that we've managed pain with fentanyl and other opiates, short and long-acting opiates, into uh, opioid sparing or opioid-free anesthetics. Yeah, and the opioid-free, is it's an odd concept, isn't it? You know, but, uh, the one thing I didn't mention in the holding area or in the operating room is that, we'll, that incorporates regional anesthesia, either TAP blocks yeah. or epidurals, uh, and then and then the anesthetic could include ketamine as a because ketamine is associated with good better pain control and avoidance of of narcotics and then one of the most important paradigm shifts is the is is the idea of not of minimizing fluids or i think more appropriately what's termed goal directed resuscitation yeah as you know uh and i know because i've been doing this a little longer than you that there's a physiologic response to anesthesia that I don't that you would understand better than me, but it involves some vasodilatation, and and you and that can lead to dropping your blood pressure and the lower urine outputs. Uh, one way that we've traditionally treated that is just by giving a bunch of fluid. Mm. So if you fill up the those dilated ve veins, uh, you, the patient's pressure will return to normal. That will lead to over resuscitation. Um, and cellular swelling, and some people have termed that saltwater drowning. Mm. I think now we know that if you that if you can appropriately limit the fluid by judiciously giving crystalloid, 
and also incorporating vasoconstrictors when appropriate, you can minimize that exposure to fluid in the operating room. And I think that is really important. And I grew up in an era when we, when I was a resident in the ICU, we never gave patients pressors. We just mm. flooded them with fluids uh, until their pressure returned to normal. Um, and we don't do that anymore. And you mentioned in a recent talk, the adage that you used to use, you got to swell to get well. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> it. And so that's been a paradigm shift. And, and it, I think of all the things that we do, well, I think they're all important, but that is one of the backbones is, is goal-directed resuscitation. Well, and, and specifically on that note, I think it's really interesting that when you change your pre-op paradigm from NPO after midnight to oral fluid intake, clear liquids, complex carbohydrates, up until two hours prior to your surgery, patients aren't coming in as dehydrated. Changes in the bowel prep regimen are uh, not leading to the same fluid losses that people saw 10, 15 years ago. And then you mentioned a very important point, which is the physiologic change to anesthesia. I, I think it's still very common practice throughout the United States that you start an anesthetic, you see someone's pressure drop from vasodilation, and you crank open your fluids. And shifting that paradigm to say, there's other ways to treat that. Even in, even in, with a uh, complicated advanced monitoring that we have for uh, managing goal-directed fluid therapy. So if you have a, you know, an, an advanced arterial monitor or some sort of respiratory variation where you're looking at fluid responsiveness, those monitors may tell you, well, the patient's fluid responsive, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you actually need to give them that fluid bolus. You have to take in the whole clinical picture. There may be some other things that you could do in terms of giving a vasopressor or adjusting the anesthetic depth to manage how people are dealing with that relative hypovolemia intraoperatively. Exactly. I, and, and, that's, and that's the crux of it. There's a little bit of judgment, but, but a, a general recognition that we give patients too much fluid. If you yeah. looked at colon surgery, uh, if you give patients more than a liter and a half or two liters of fluid during that operation, the risk for mortality and morbidity is significantly higher. So there's a direct correlation between those two things, and that's a big change of practice, and, and but very important. I, I think one of the other uh, foundational changes to anesthesia practice that I have seen in looking at the literature is that shift in pain management and multimodal pain management and, and understanding that if you can get some of these things that are not opioids uh, on board early, you've got some pain coverage in the intraoperative phase. And there's some other techniques that you can use in terms of intraoperative ketamine, lidocaine infusions, esmolol uh, to manage response to laryngoscopy, those kind of things, uh, magnesium infusions. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are, that are non-opioids that we could use. Could you speak briefly, what's the impetus from uh, getting away from op opioids? Well, well opiate, you don't have to look far nationally to understand that opioids are, opioids are bad for us. You know, they're bad for our society and they're bad for particular patients if they can be avoided. Opiates are associated with respiratory depression, increased risk for aspiration, uh, post-operative ileus, nausea, vomiting, um, and confusion. So there, these are drugs that have a lot of side effects. Uh, and the idea, in, and I, I would be remiss to, to imply that the other multimodal pain management drugs are complication-free. They're not. 
But I think you, when you have a multimodal pain management regimen, you 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 take multiple different drugs, each with its own risks risk profiles, and you spread out the risk, uh, and you can have a lower risk for your pain management regimen. Um, with better pain control. And as we talked about before the show, you know, a lot of really high-functioning enhanced recovery programs, opioids are considered a rescue drug that patients may or may not get. And imagine the paradigm shift where patients have a colectomy or even a Whipple. I did a liver resection the other day, and although we have not officially rolled out our ERAS protocol, I have my own bootleg version of it. Um, and, and that patient went home a couple days earlier than normal, and I and received a small amount of narcotic compared to what our standard would be. That's interesting. So I think this idea that of shifting to a uh, opiate as a last-ditch drug because of the side effect profile isn't very good. Uh, is a is a paradigm shift, but but it has huge benefits for our patients. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to put some some links to articles in the show notes. But for the anesthesia people out there that are listening. That includes uh, opiates as a rescue therapy for even the intraoperative phase, I think, which is a a really big paradigm shift to look at the physiological response to surgical stress and managing that intraoperatively without opioids, where I think traditionally in the United States, we've looked at alfentanil, fentanyl, dilaudid, morphine as first-line therapy for managing intraoperative pain, postoperative pain, and the paradigm shift is moving away from that to doing a multimodal approach, opioid sparing or opioid free intraoperatively as well as postoperatively. So it's fascinating research. The data is very strong in support of it in terms of limiting the negative side effects from opiates and uh, you know enhancing some of the outcomes uh, with some of these non-opioid alternatives. So it's super interesting. Anything else about the intraoperative phase that you want to talk about before we shift gears into PACU and recovery? No, I think that's it. And then, well, b- briefly, let's mention, uh, you know, kind of simple things like prevention of uh, venous oh. thrombosis, embolism, normothermia, intraoperatively, and and as you mentioned, yeah, preventing PONV. So some of those are the things. <laughs> They're important. I'm sorry, I missed. Well, them. no, I mean we we dove into the we dove deep since this is an anesthesia podcast on the on the pain management stuff. So, but globally, intraoperatively, there are some of these yeah. other things that we're yeah. thinking about. So too. BTO, I think, is something that most centers have done well on because it is under such scrutiny nationally. But yeah, so prevention of venous thrombosis uh, and then post-op nausea and vomiting, you know, with preventative strategies provided to prevent post-op nausea and vomiting, and then risk stratifying those patients who have a higher risk, you know, women, uh, non-smokers, people that have a history of uh, motion sickness and a past history of post-op nausea and vomiting, even stepping up the regimen for those patients. And then uh, there was a third thing you mentioned. What was that? I... Uh, let's see, normothermia. Normothermia, that's the heating that starts in the pre-op area but continues in the in the room with bear huggers and those kind of devices. Yep. And then are these folks getting uh, nasogastric tubes, Foley catheters? What's your well, thought on that? So Foley catheters, are, I think, are important for operations. So they can get Foley catheters, but they should come out as soon as they're not needed. And most patients should be discontinued either in the holding area or on post-op day one. 
and um, then tubes and drains that, that's a great point we put when I was a resident people would sit in the hospital for a week or 10 days with an NG tube and that uh, that stops you from eating but also opens your lower esophageal sphincter and increases your risk for post-op pneumonia so it increases length mm. of stay increases complications and of course increases costs so you want to avoid that unless patients are are vomiting now I had a busy practice when I was at East Carolina University, and for my Whipple patients and gastrectomy patients, I got away from putting NG tubes in those patients. And that was that was hard for me because I, I had to read some papers and then review them and think about it. And um, but when you do the whole program, you can avoid those things. It's if you don't do the whole program, that is, if you your patients flooded with fluids, they're getting a bunch of narcotics. Mm. Right. You know, um, yeah, they're going to be sick and they are, they're going to vomit, and those patients will need an NG tube. But if you do the enhanced recovery program properly, a minority of patients are going to vomit and need to have those tubes placed. So avoidance of NG tubes and other drains we put in the in the in the operating room, uh, particularly for pancreatic surgery, we should be mindful of why we put them in, which is to mitigate the consequences of a pancreatic leak. And when those patients aren't, aren't the, in the 80% of those patients who don't have a leak, we, t- we should take those tubes out because they do cause harm uh, if, you know, they're, if they're not needed. The, the, concept, the risk outweighs the benefits. So it's avoidance of those things, yeah. That's interesting. Your, your point that if you implement the whole program, then you mitigate your need for an NG tube. I think yeah. it goes back to... I think you may have said it in the first show, the details matter. Yes. Actually implementing the, the whole yeah. program matters. So you can't just say, I'm not going to put NG tubes in my patients that have Whipples, but not do any of the rest of the right. enhanced recovery program right. because they're, most of them are going to vomit. But you're right. If you do prevention of post-op nausea vomiting, avoidance of narcotics, um, avoidance of over-resuscitation of your patients, those most of those patients aren't going to have the nausea and vomiting that are traditional outcomes after major GI surgery, whether it be colectomy or, or a, uh, a Whipple's procedure or yeah. a liver resection. Yeah, that's fascinating. Let's talk about the, the post-op care. Okay, so the post-op care continues the same principles. Again, it's the big, you know, it's the, the same idea. It's a multimodal pain management, and, and that continues gabapentum, ideally ketamine if you have, if you have the team to do that. NSAIDs in appropriate patients, Tylenol, um, some pathways incorporate lidocaine and magnesium. We're not doing that here, but the nice thing about having the program and studying our outcomes is that we can incorporate those things and see if they make additional difference. And then, again, narcotics as a rescue medicine. Then early convalescence. If you have someone, an older patient, and you put them in bed for a week, uh, that it's going to be difficult for them uh, to get better. We know that older patients have a decreased muscle mass and, diff- and have, will have a harder time recovering. So it's getting patients up on day one, sitting in a chair. What I tell my patients, uh, I ask them if they're in bed eating, do you eat, do you eat breakfast in bed at home? If you, if you don't, then you shouldn't do it here either. Right. You should be up right. out of bed eating it off the table like you do at home. So I expect them to be out of bed for six to eight hours every day. My expectations are going to walk five times in the hall, uh, and that is the the idea the idea of early convalescence. And here we've really engaged 
physical therapy and occupational therapy. Uh, but in, rea in reality, where I came from, we, we did not have the PT resources. But once the nurses know it, it's helpful. Yeah. Interesting, there's an interesting study looking at uh, nursing work because it sounds like a lot of work, this enhanced recovery program, but actually the nursing work is less hmm. with enhanced recovery program. If you think of it, you know, yeah, it's hard work if you have to get a Hoyer lift to get someone out of bed yeah. because they haven't gotten out in three days. It's hard work to care to take care of an acubitus ulcer on a patient who's not moved. It's hard work to take care of somebody with an NG tube that's vomiting hmm. or a patient with a pneumonia or a patient with a wound infection. So if you do the program right, it looks like a lot of work, but the work prevents prevents Other more work. work. So yeah. Stitch in yeah. time saves nine. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's very interesting to, to draw from my own experience, and I'm reminded of working in a medical surgical ICU at a hospital in North Carolina in, in Asheville, in uh, dealing with post-op complex GI patients, vented patients, uh, other types of post-surgical patients, medical patients. I don't know if at the time that I was there, we were calling it an enhanced recovery program, but I was there when the paradigm shift began to hit the ICUs at that medical institution where we were getting patients up out of bed. We were getting vented patients up out of bed. We were changing sedation paradigms. We were getting people uh, to walk down the hall on the ventilator. Uh, getting them, you know, post-extubation up to eat, getting their tubes and foleys out. This was a big paradigm shift, and, and it changed a lot of people's practices and ideas about what was possible. But we actually looked at our outcomes in that ICU and had decreased over a time of those couple of years that we implemented some of these changes. Our length of stay dropped by three days on average for all patients, which was fascinating. But I can remember... It was a difficult thing for people to get their heads around in terms of the paradigm shift because we're doing things a little bit differently. Yeah, like we're going to walk our patient on a ventilator. Yeah. And that's the idea of enhanced recovery is that you were doing best evidence-based practice. But what enhanced recovery does is it takes that best practice and it automates it. Yeah. And, you know, automated best practice leads to decreased variation. I don't know if I mentioned this, but uh, decreased variation leads to uh, better outcomes uh, and higher quality. Yeah, we did speak briefly about uh, standard deviation and or, or, or acceptable variation and uh, kind of unacceptable variation. So. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so I think it that inappropriate vari variation leads to bad outcomes. One of my professors, when I was a resident, he would say um, unusual operations have unusual outcomes when uh, somebody chose a bad operation. That's uh, interesting. So I think it's the same thing. Unusual practice leads to unusual outcomes. That's interesting. Well, rounding out the, the discussion on ERAS, and then we'll switch gears and, and, and wrap up uh, talking about frailty and the perioperative home. But um, what kinds of surprising challenges have you seen uh, surface when you're trying to implement an enhanced recovery program? You know, it's, it's all about, it's about change. You know, I think the thing that surprised me, and I mentioned this in the first podcast, is that, I, you know, I took a personality test with a big group in a leadership, um, sem uh, year-long leadership seminar, and I, and I was surprised at what variation there was in, in um, acceptance of change. Yeah. I'm a very change-oriented personality, but uh, a lot of people are, change is harder for them. I think recognizing, for me, recognizing that people are different than I am 
in all kinds of ways, but particularly in their in their um, acceptance of change. That yes. Is, you know, for me, I see a new, new program. I'm kind of excited about, and sometimes I change, and then I then I realize it wasn't the right thing to do, and I change right back. Yeah. Uh, so change isn't always good, um, but it's recognizing that it, that people have a hard time with change, and that yeah. you have to yeah. move at a pace that the institution and providers can feel comfortable with. Uh, but but we must move forward for right. the betterment of our patients. That's great. That's that's so well said. Uh, you had mentioned something in a previous talk that I thought was very interesting that one of the challenges uh, locally was figuring out just who was going to pay for the carbohydrate drink or, or where where that was. Yeah. So there like there's could be like little things that oh, yeah, can the, be very difficult to to actually launch. It's a it's a I would call it and I, I hope nobody in the administration is listening, but, uh, <laughs> but it's a penny wise pound foolish. You know, the, the carbohydrate drink costs about a little under $10. Yeah. Um, and everybody is stressed about who's going to pay for that. When, I, when we all know that this is going to save thousands of dollars for each patient. Yeah. Um, and when I was in North Carolina, we had the exact same fight. And the, dietitian, the, diet, the dietary department agreed to pay for it for one year. And then the... The head of that department retired, and they forgot to stop paying for it. So we paid for it. But his contention was in his budget, this is you know ten dollars a patient. It doesn't make any difference at all. Yeah. Um, and and he was he just wanted to do it because it was the right thing. But here it's the same. But, but it's not it's not a reimbursable thing. Yeah, it's not. It's, yeah, so it's ten dollars that you that someone has to pay for that comes out of their cost center. Yeah. So that's the reticence to pay for it. But if you think as a system, it's it's $10 well invested in, in better patient outcomes. And, any, and if all you were worried about was cost and profit, it's $10 spent in a program that's going to save you a, a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think that's one of the... One of the complexities about healthcare economics, both on a macro level and also at an institutional level, that you've got to find ways to not just look at a particular dollar sign on a particular line item, but to think globally about patient care and what are we doing and how to shift the experience to where overall uh, cost is reduced and outcomes are better. Exactly. So anything else you want to say specifically about ERAS? And then we'll, we'll wrap this section up. This would be podcast number two. And then we'll close out briefly with a talk on frailty and uh, the perioperative home. I, I think that summarizes it well. And thanks a lot. Great, great. Okay.